Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode in the New Books and Gender Studies podcast, part of the New Books Network. I am one of your co-hosts, Kyle McMillan, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by two brilliant people, uh, Allison Schrager and Alice Little, talking about um, Allison's book, An Economist Walks Into a Brothel and Other Unexpected Places to Understand Risk. Uh, Allison and Alice, how are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having us. Yes, we're so excited to be here. This is going to be a really great conversation. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited. It's my first interview with two people, so I am also excited for that. Um, first, just to give the, uh, the listeners an, a brief introduction into both of you, um, we'll start with Allison. Um, do you want to give us a little background of your academic trajectory, which you do talk about a little bit in the book, um, and what led you to sort of write this really accessible book about economics and what how you ended up sort of as the title explains going into a brothel to understand um things about economics well i mean this might sound unexpected but i am an economist who's trained in retirement finance which is the study of risk and how individuals manage risk throughout their lifetime so I, I did a PhD in that, uh, which, but uh, when I finished, I just realized I didn't want to be a professor. So I ended up uh, working as a journalist and doing some financial product innovation, but and got through my journalism, got really interested in storytelling. And because I was also working in retirement product innovation, I also just became more and more aware of the retirement problem we've put on everyone, that everyone now, because of 401ks, has to save and invest for retirement. And we've put this huge, really difficult risk problem on every person, but haven't given them any training or tools of how to think about risk or the science behind risk, what I've been studying my whole career. So that was the idea for the book is, could I find really interesting stories about risk that would illustrate what I think people need to know to be good risk takers and healthy risk takers? And I ended up at uh, the Bunny Ranch because I was doing a story about negotiation skills because they actually have a really effective and impressive negotiation training program. So that's when I first met Alice is when I learned negotiation skills from her, which changed my life, incidentally, just because it made me a much better negotiator and a lot more confident taking risks myself. Uh, And that's what brought me to Alice in the brothel, because when I was there, in addition to learning negotiation skills, I was really struck by the price difference between the legal and illegal market. And I came to realize that customers pay so much really to reflect the safety that they get from the brothel and that the brothel workers like Alice pay a huge chunk of their earnings to the brothel, but don't think twice about it because they appreciate the safety of the brothel offers. Mm -hmm. That is correct. It's a very interesting setup that we have because brothels are only legal in one of the 50 states, Nevada, which is where I work and operate. As such, We have specific laws and legislation that kind of dictate the way that we must run our businesses and brands. And there's a lot of complicated 
things that kind of fall under that umbrella. As such, we're only able to negotiate in person at the ranch property and are unable to discuss rates online in any capacity. As you can imagine, that's led to me picking up some pretty tremendous skills in communication as well as negotiation. Right. And one of the things that um, sort of uh, stood out to me um, was that, you know, you're using all these like economic principles and being very, very successful in your business. And I want you to talk about um, sort of first, you know, you have also an interesting background in like activism um, around sex work. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about that and sort of then how did you start integrating these economic principles into that work? Of course. I started my foray into the legal brothel system approximately three years ago. Prior to that, I was traveling around the country, teaching and educating about sex education. I was working with men, women, couples, talking about everything from BDSM to alternative lifestyle choices. Well, I met somebody through that path that had been working at the Bunny Ranch, and they introduced me to that lifestyle. I decided to go out there, check it out for myself, and fell in love with the career. I very quickly realized that there was a need for well-spoken activism and education about what the brothel system is and who the people really are within that system. Unfortunately, there's not a lot known about the legal brothel system in Nevada because it's only existent in Nevada. There's not a lot of information that's broadcast. So I took it upon myself to become an advocate and activist. I stepped up to the plate and started a movement to bring health care availability to the workers at the brothels. I also am an ambassador for the Nevada Brothel Association, where I represent the need for working conditions that the women seek. It's a really wonderful setup in the sense that it's empowering women not just to speak for themselves and advocate for themselves, but also succeed financially as well. I'm currently the most successful legal sex worker in the country and the most successful legal sex worker ever to come out of the Nevada brothel system. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And, you know, I think a good place to start um, when we're talking about sort of the economic principles that, uh, Allison, you write in your book. Um, so for people that are listening to this podcast and they're like, all right, I'm interested in gender studies. I'm not really into economics at all. Uh, what is risk as uh, economics talks about it or sort of conceptualizes it? And then from both of you, what can we learn about risk from sex work? Well, technically risk in the economic sense is anytime you make a decision or face anything in the future, you don't know what's going to happen. The future is always uncertain. So risk is, in, in financial economics, an estimate of all the things that could happen, good and bad, and how probable they are. Um, and that's important because what finan the financial sector does is it, it makes that estimate, and then that derives value. So any price of a financial asset reflects that risk estimate. Um, but what I explore in my book is sort of nothing to do with financial markets. It's the same principles at play is that there's all prices are driven by risk. And traditionally uh, in the illegal sex market, sex work market, you know, you had this really distorted risk reward relationship in that traditionally you think of pimps as, for, you know, 
forcing women or their, whoever it is working for them into very risky situations and then taking the premium, where traditionally, if you take more risk, you get more money. Uh, so what I found really fascinating about the brothel, you know, and what Dennis Hoff set up is that he actually made his money by eliminating risks from both sides of the transaction. Mm -hmm. It really is true. In the independent market, there is no safety provided for either the purchaser or the provider. Within the legal brothel system, there is safety there, both for the women that work within the system, as well as for those that are choosing to partake in our services. Every single room at the Bunny Ranch is equipped with a panic button should we so need it. We have staff on site able to help us should we ever so need it. And the facilities are maintained in such a way that anybody who would have ill wishes generally isn't looking to come to that facility. It would be ridiculous to go to a place like the Bunny Ranch and pay top dollar to turn around and then harm a woman. Instead, we see violence happening in the illegal and independent market where there is no regulation and no protection. As such, the women assume a far greater risk, but really don't see the financial reward of it. Whereas in my line, where it's legal, regulated, and recognized by the state, I not only dissipate my risk, but I actually reap a far greater reward as a result of that. Right. And, you know, part of what you mentioned about measuring risk, right? Um, traditionally, um, in economics or, you know, just in sort of everyday life, uh, you talk about how we use past instances to, or like past results to measure risk. And you sort of talk about why this might not be the best way to measure risk. So why is that? Well, I'd say it's the best way, but it's not a good way, if you know what I mean. Because, I mean, the past is all we have to measure risk, but it's it's inherently flawed because you don't know if the past is going to be in a good indicator of the future. Um, but unfortunately, it's all we have to go on. Otherwise, we're just really flying blind. I mean, ultimately, history is some guide, but you have to be mindful that it's not a complete guide. Mm -hmm. Especially as society has evolved so rapidly in terms of technological advancements and improvements, there's really no way to account for that in terms of economic risk, because the reality is we can't factor in unknown changes. For example, nobody foresaw that the World Wide Web would become this new marketplace that would result in trillions of dollars entering the global economy. Yeah, and, and speaking about that, how has the internet changed um, sort of sex work in general, it both sort of uh, in the lived practice of it, but also sort of on the economic side of it. Well, it's interesting in that it really did change what Alice calls the independent or illegal market because um, it meant that women could work independently. Like before they had to go through, if they worked illegally, they had to go through agencies or pimps who really took a large share of their earnings. And what you see is when you opened up the internet is that you had a lot more people enter the industry. Although what's interesting as an economist is prices actually went up because what you had is you had more uh, people enter sex work who normally wouldn't have, but because the money was good enough, they did. But the problem is, and this is where the brothel has a great advantage, is you do have these women who are meeting strangers on the internet and then going to, you know, be alone with them in a in a sort of shady place, potentially. So this is why they're subject to a lot of danger. Now, a lot of women who work independently go through sort of fairly elaborate screening mechanisms. 
to make sure that their customers aren't police or uh, some sort of deranged lunatic, but it's imperfect and costly in terms of time and also a lot more difficult now after FOSTA was passed, which is impairing a lot of the sites where they do their screening. Yes, SESTA and FOSTA resulted in a large number of blacklists being removed from the internet. A blacklist or bad date list is a documented list that has been put together anonymously by multiple sex workers in a focused area to document any individuals that could potentially wish harm or ill to the women that work within that network. So, for example, if there was a known rapist in, say, Sacramento, that blacklist very well would be able to distribute that individual's name so the women are aware of that risk. With SESTA and FOSTA passing into existence, a lot of those websites are no longer allowed to be on the Internet. As such, you've taken what was already an underground industry and pushed it even darker into the dark, and it's resulted in a far greater increase of risk There's been an increase in violence in the independent world, and there's been an increase in uh, homicide rates as well. It's very unfortunate to see that when you remove the screening procedures that you increase risk for women that choose to work independently. Whereas for myself as a legal sex worker working through the state of Nevada, I don't have to worry about screenings. I don't need to worry about a bad date list. Nobody would think to come to my place of business with those kinds of ill intents. It kind of does some of the pre-screening for me. The reputation and legality prevents any sort of ill behavior from entering there in the first place. And what's what's really tragic about uh, System Basta is it was put in place uh, because uh, under the presumption that most sex work is trafficking, which isn't true anyway. But mm-hmm. even, even, that, thing. even that aside, you know, it actually makes it harder for police to find trafficking victims. I mean, the best way to deal with trafficking is to have this completely legal. I don't think most people realize what legal sex workers have to go through in terms of even getting a license. But even before, the websites where women did advertise in the illegal market would often work with law enforcement to find victims of trafficking. So law enforcement has also lost that that outlet. Mm-hmm. It's really unfortunate. But legal sex work is not the same thing as sex trafficking, nor is any form of sex work. Sex work is an inherently consensual industry if someone is not choosing to participate they're not choosing to be a sex worker at that point they're a victim they're not willingly participating in the industry and and that's when you see the conflation happening because there's this gray line where there's this lack of clarity when it comes to who's making the choice is the woman actually getting the money or is there a pimp that's funneling the money and directing it away from her and that confusion leads to a lot of blurred lines. The legal market and legalizing it on a far grander scale would clarify a lot of those contentious points, not to mention the fact that it economically would allow for the tremendous amount of taxation benefit, which in Lyon County, the small area that I work, our taxation benefits already half a million dollars. Imagine that on a far greater scale, it would be tremendously beneficial. Right. And maybe you want to talk a little bit about that um, sort of screening process in legal sex work, because I think that's something that most people, like you said, don't really know about or don't really they don't really have a good conception of what it actually looks like. 
No, most people are absolutely shocked when they find out that in order for me to obtain a legal brothel license, I have to pass and clear a federal background investigation check. I actually had to submit fingerprints to the FBI and have those results come back before I was allowed to work legally. Additionally, we are required to see the doctor every single week, and if our results do not come back negative, we're unable to work at that point in time. As such, the system is set up to keep anyone who doesn't want to be there out of the system. There's multiple opportunities where someone could say, hey, you know what? This isn't for me, and I think I need to go home or go somewhere else. And that resource then is made available to someone. The biggest mistake that people can make when it comes to thinking about sex work and sex trafficking and that whole thing is to conflate consensual sex work to non-consensual sex trafficking. What we're looking for is a legalized, regulated industry for those that choose to work within it. We're not wanting to force or coerce anyone to be there that does not want to. If anything, we want to keep those people out of the industry. Right. And and one of the biggest strengths about this book in particular is that it, it really takes these um, concepts from economics that might be intimidating to some and sort of puts them in these frames like, you know, a brothel that sort of make it more understandable for people. And one of the, the ones that really changed sort of how I viewed a particular term in economics was how you talked about risk perception, right, which sort of builds on what we've been talking about here. And Allison, you talk about how, you know, usually when we're talking about risk perception, we're talking about um, probabilities, right? And, and that might not be the best way to understand risk. So why do you say or argue that using frequencies is maybe more useful than probability? Well, I think it's just, I mean, I, I got into a lot of the work of Gerd Gigerenzer, who's this German psychologist, who, you know, I probably, you hear a lot, oh, people can't understand risk and people are shown probabilities and they don't connect with them. And he argues that we can understand risk. We actually have very sophisticated brains that can make sense of risk. It's just that we were meant to understand risk in natural environments. And probabilities are a fairly recent invention that, you know, really sort of an early Renaissance invention. So it's not shocking that we don't aren't naturally born understanding probabilities. We're not naturally born understanding how to read either. You know, we can learn this stuff. Uh, but there is, he's found in his work that if we think in terms of frequencies, so rather than thinking there's a 1% chance, there's a 1 in 100 chance, that when people are shown 1 in 100, they actually make decisions that are very consistent with what any financial model would predict. Like they actually do make these very rational risk decisions and seem to understand, uh, you know, the uncertainty and trade-offs in risk. It's just they have to translate things into probabilities. And that can be a real game changer in terms of people's behavior. And we've talked about um, from both of you, some of the misconceptions about um, legalized sex work. What, which of these misconceptions could be sort of further debunked or sort of better understood by the public if we thought about them as frequencies rather than probabilities? Probably the sheer existence of a legalized system, the fact that it's been there since 1972, and we've seen instances of sex work in society all the way back from the dawn of time, all the way back to Assyro-Babylonian times, all the way through Egypt, Rome, into modern day times, sex work has been a consistent appearance as a 
thing in society. Well, for the first time, we're actually legalizing it, taxing it, and using it to benefit the public. If we look at the fact that throughout history, it keeps showing up again and again and again and again, and there's this consistent appearance of sex work, it should be fairly easy for people to understand that criminalizing sex work isn't going to make it go away. If anything, we need to legalize it, take the taxation dollars, and use it for public good. That would be the absolute best way to go about handling a legal sex work system. I don't know. What are your thoughts? I think in terms of, as I said, making the risk real is I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what the market's about, who's involved in the market, both customers and providers. And, you know, what frequency thinking does is it makes these points more salient and more home. And I think if people really saw what the industry involves, who's involved in it, you know, it, it would seem more real to people and they would understand the benefits and, and the trade-offs. I mean, for instance, people always would ask me about, you know, my time in uh, studying in the uh, risk in the brothels and assume that I'd just be appalled by all the customers. And I was like, you know, we live in times where there's a lot of loneliness. And you definitely, I, I feel like I met a lot of lonely men who just, for whatever reason, don't know how to make a connection. And this is where they get it. And it's not creepy. It's just sort of, it just is what it is. And as Alice says, you know, there's always been that element who, who's seeking a connection. And this is where they find it. Mm -hmm. It's not a dirty, dark or insidious place. Like Allison said, there truly is an epidemic of loneliness existing in our society right now. And recent studies have shown that loneliness is just as deadly as smoking an entire pack of cigarettes each day. And when more than 80% of Americans surveyed showed that they felt chronically lonely, that means that we have a population that's going to be suffering the very real health consequences from that. Why not have legal sex work to cut down on the health risk of loneliness? Why not treat loneliness through companionship? Well, yeah, and I, I think, too, like part of why um, we sort of have this, I would say, like... Uh, binary understanding of sex work or maybe not even binary it might it might not be even that complicated but why why is it important that you know especially from things like the media and you know even popular culture it seems like we kind of get this one version of what sex work is and it's usually sort of a not what it actually is so you know what are some ways that beyond you know of, of course, we would want people to pick up this book and read sort of your chapter about um, risk and, and the brothel. But what are other ways that we can start having more nuanced conversations about sex work? I said, I think it, it comes from hearing the stories. I mean, I only actually have one chapter on sex work, but it was important to me throughout the book to find voices that I feel like don't get as much attention, like really to genius people hiding in plain sight. And I think really uncovering how thoughtful and sophisticated people are in industries that you would never realize. And I, I said, I made a point, I interviewed a lot of women for the, in the brothel from my chapter. And, you know, you know, I met some very savvy businesswomen. I think it's not only is the perception that all these every, sex work is trafficking, which is, first of all, crazy, but also even the women who aren't technically trafficked are some sort of victim. And... You know, I, 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 if I could say there's one thing I could say is true of every sex worker I've ever met, because everyone has their own story, everyone's there for their own reasons, is no one wants to be seen as a victim. 
And they're quite emphatic about that. Yet we keep assigning that that role to them. Mm -hmm. It starts with changing the conversation to talk to sex workers, not just about sex workers. In Hollywood and pop culture, we see these stereotypes brought to screen, and that is the only portrayal that most people get of what a sex worker is. Instead, we need to open up the doors and encourage people to talk to sex workers directly. We're out there. We're accessible. I personally tell people to reach out to me anytime for any reason at all. I'm an open book because the reality is when you talk to us, you learn the reality of who we are and what we do rather than the Hollywood stereotype, which is what we most oftentimes see portrayed and assumed. Right. And, you know, another thing that I think is really important as well is, you know, you talked about this at the very beginning, uh, Alice, but talking about how um, there are so many different concepts beyond just risk that you can, you know, not only sort of learn from, but experience if you are in sex work. So what are some of the other sort of economic principles that maybe, you know, you're not even thinking about them in sort of the terms of economic principle. What, what are some like sort of um, ideas that um, you are picking up from this industry or you see that others have from this industry that are sort of really, um, that would bridge well with sort of, um, you know, making economics more accessible to people? The entire chapter that Allison put together about the paparazzi really spoke to me in particular because I found myself drawing lots of parallels from that reality to my own reality, because those same basic conceptualizations and those same kind of um, societal rules of how we operate and work, they exist within every subset of society. So it got me thinking, what are the rules of being a legal sex worker? How do we choose to operate? And I thought that it was a really interesting way to examine it. So I think most people could take any example from one of her books especially though the one about the paparazzi and really take a look at it and self-apply it and gain deeper understanding as to how does this principle work and apply to their own life it's the difference between reacting to something and acting when you do something purposefully you know it understand it and recognize it you're able to do something with intention and I think that using economics in an intentional way to benefit yourself in business is probably the greatest lesson that the book has to teach. Yeah. Do you want to talk, Allison, about that chapter on the paparazzi? Because that was a really, really interesting chapter. Oh, thanks. And um, I also want to hear uh, how Alice related it to her line of work, because um, I'd love to hear that, too. So I spent, uh, I went out with the paparazzi in New York several times to understand, because uh, they have, as you can imagine, incredibly volatile income because if you get that one money shot, like you can make $100,000, but most days they'll only make five. So what they're dealing with is actually something everyone's dealing with. It's just a lot more extreme, which is, you know, what we call that odds of getting that one shot idiosyncratic risk, which in the stock market is just this, the risk that an individual stock will rise and fall. Like Facebook fires Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, that's impossible, but I suppose they did. That would be risks unique to Facebook. So that's idiosyncratic. And you can get rid of idiosyncratic risk by diversification. If you just own enough stocks, it's totally gone. Um, and the paparazzi do that too. What they do is they work in teams to um, essentially pool their luck. 
So uh, if one person gets a tip, they share it. So it's not so random. But because getting an exclusive shot is so valuable, they're always cheating on their alliances. So they're always falling apart. They're always reforming and falling apart. But that's not even their biggest risk. Their biggest risk is actually technology, which has moved the celebrity photo gazing uh, audience online, which means they now get paid a lot less. That $5 shot of someone getting coffee, they used to get 15000 Now they get five. And no one really knows how to deal with this risk. And I think we're seeing this a lot in the labor market for everyone is, you know, we've always had the risk that an individual job wouldn't work out for whatever reason, but you could always get another job in your field. And now what we're seeing is more so technology and globalization changing the labor market where everyone's experiencing more systematic risk. Yeah. So Alice, what was the um, sort of connections that you made to sort of sex work from that um, particular chapter on idiosyncratic risk and whatnot? Well, very much so the conceptualization that you're waiting for like that that money shot. In the brothel industry, there are different types of experiences. You figure there's everything from a brief encounter all the way to something like an overnight experience. And of course, those that are looking to be the most successful typically are looking to offer the most valued services, which are usually the prolonged experiences or specialty type experiences. And it was very interesting to see the parallels and how girls stack the odds in their favor of landing themselves, say, an overnight party as opposed to a quickie party, and they change their behavior. Girls will work together. You will see them branching out and using different forms of social media that they previously hadn't in order to kind of set themselves up for the maximum level of success. So I just thought that chapter was so interesting because you can see that same kind of risk behavior or risk management behavior being personified by the sex workers too huh i never knew that that's so cool oh yeah it's very interesting you figure it's a very complex and specific form of marketing to target someone that is say seeking an overnight encounter or seeking say a specialty encounter like a bdsm experience i've always focused on touching people personally and connecting with them at that humanistic level. And for me, that's been really successful. That's where it kind of deviated away from the paparazzi in the sense where I have that real human connection with my guests and my clients, whereas they have almost little to no personal contact with the celebrity. Sometimes they do, but and and that actually is also something they do. Like they secretly often have connections with a celebrity and the celebrity will tip them off. And it's the same thing. You're investing in an asset, that personal relationship. Huh. See, and I had no idea that that was like a back and forth thing. That is so interesting. It goes to show you, though, how universal some of the parallels are within the book that if it works for anything from paparazzi to brothels, it'll safely work for you, too. <laughs> right. And, you know, now that we're making all these connections, uh, Allison, I wanted to see, you know, we talked about brothels we talked about paparazzi maybe give us one more area of life that we might not expect to find sort of economic principles in play that you write about in your book well the other surprising place so i mean every place was surprising was i went to a risk conference with big wave surfers um they actually have a couple times a year a conference where they talk about risk because another kind of risk is what we call systemic risk which is when you when a bank takes a huge risk, like it did with a uh, financial crisis, and that risk goes badly, we all end up having to pay the cost. 
And surfers are very aware of this because uh, just like people do in financial markets, people can use technology to end up surfing waves they have no business being on. And if they wipe out and need to get rescued, you know, the whole community has to pay a cost for that. You know, either it diverts resources to for rescue away from people who need it more, or you might crash into someone. So from then, you know, we, we had this really interesting discussion about how to use technology, which technology generally is about mitigating our risk. They could also be used to take more risk. So, I mean, I think you could see that even in the illegal market for sex work, like the internet allowed women to reach more customers, which is dangerous, but they could also use the technology to mitigate their risk by doing screening. But I think what made the surfers more like financial, you know, financial modelers is this worry that when you do take too much risk with technology, because it empowers you to take more risks, you actually compose a cost to everyone. And you want to think about, you know, are you taking risks for the right reasons? Are you taking the biggest risk you can just because you can? And to think, be more mindful of how this can impact others. Yeah, that's um, really just <laughs> a fascinating uh, part of your book because I, you know, you're jumping around as you're going through the book. You know, you start at the brothel, then we go to the paparazzi, and then we end up at the surfing conference. And it's just like a really... Uh, I almost got jealous of sort of your your research that you got to do for this book. I'm um, going to all these like sort of eclectic uh, places and um, learning about different ways that we can conceptualize risk or talk about risk. Um, and one of the things I know that I've taken up a lot of uh, both of your time today, but I think one of the ways I like to end my interviews is to you know have the audience. Um, get your, you know, your take on if you could give them sort of one takeaway or one sort of salient point you'd want them to sort of carry with them after reading this book. Um, what do you think that would be? I'd like people to feel more comfortable taking on risk. I think we tend to think of it as this very binary thing. Either you take a risk or you don't. And I think people need to take more risks, but also they can take risks in a smart way and learn how to how to take a risk, how to me- how to measure it before they take it, and then how to manage it. But also be mindful of you know the, what the risk is and how it affects others. Uh, Alice, uh, what do you think? You know, we've talked a lot about sort of the. Um, myths uh, and sort of misconceptions that follow uh, sex work and especially like legalized sex work, you know, and I would say most people aren't even thinking um, they might not even know that legalized sex work might exist. Um, Mm -hmm. So what is something that you would want our listeners sort of take away um, from your experience and your experience working with Allison? Challenge your perceptions and expand your horizons. Question why you have the beliefs that you do about sex, sex work, and sex workers, and actually challenge why do you feel that way? Many people have an instantaneous negative association with my industry, but when questioned about it, they oftentimes find that there's no factual reason for that feeling. So instead, I encourage people to educate themselves. I create a whole wealth of content across my blog, YouTube, as well as my podcast, so people can really listen and learn. That would be the biggest takeaway that I have. And uh, for our final question, um, Allison, I'll start with you. Um, Do you have any uh, book recommendations for our listeners that if they, you know, picked up your book and they got really interested 
in sort of economics and maybe like how to better understand economics if they're not someone that, you know, studies it or is, you know, already interested in it? Is there a few books that you would recommend that people sort of check out? Well, if they really want to nerd out and are interested in financial economics, which is what I wrote about, is Peter Bernstein's Against the Gods, which I I just think is a beautiful book. It's very long and a little dense, but just so beautifully written and really discusses a lot of the same things I do in greater depth. But if people like the sort of storytelling way of understanding economics, I mean, Freakonomics, a lot of people, it's been out for a while, is also a really just great way to get a better sense of how economists think. And then for you, Alice, are there any uh, resources, you know, if people do start thinking to themselves like, oh, I, I do have these misconceptions about sex work and I do want to sort of challenge myself and learn more. Are there resources that you could point them to, whether it's your own or sort of others that would help them along the way? Absolutely so. The first place that you want to stop would be my website, www.thealicelittle.com, where you can find links to my podcast, my YouTube channel, as well as my blog. But if you're looking for an outside perspective, I strongly recommend picking up the book Sex at Dawn. I feel like it challenges our societal beliefs about sex, intimacy, and relationships in a way that is very relatable to modern day society Even though this book was written back in the 80s, it was very ahead of its time, and it's still one that I reference constantly. Well, those are some that I will definitely be sure to check out. Um, But before you check those out, be sure to check out Alison Traeger's book, An Economist Walks Into a Brothel and Other Unexpected Places to Understand Risk. Alison, Alice, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Thank you for having us. Thank you.